I'm really excited to have the sound team from Naughty Dog, the sound team behind The uh, Last of Us Part Two. Robert Kreckel, our audio lead. Uh, Neil, you could tell, our senior sound designer. Jonathan Lanier, the audio programmer. And Magid Khalil Ragab, dialogue supervisor. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, having a chance to chat. I feel like uh, when a video game comes out, it's kind of like you can't say much. You don't want to spoil the game for anyone. You, you, there's kind of a waiting period of you know letting the fans dig into this project that you have been following now for quite some time. My understanding is, I guess, the development for The Last of Us Part Two began around 2014, soon after the release of The Last of Us Remastered. Neil Druckmann, the game director, also uh, co-writing the story with Haley Gross. And so um, I think, Rob, before we were chatting and um, you were saying that obviously you're aware that Neil was starting the writing process back when this remaster came out, which was July 29th of 2014. So knowing that not only do you have the next game at the time you guys were working on Uncharted 4 Thieves End, which would come out um, in May of 2016, but knowing that The Last of Us Part Two was coming out, how much did you guys know at the time? How did it start to get unveiled to you? Because I feel like now that we know how much work went into this part two, I just can't only imagine, you know, what, what were your first reactions to uh, knowing that there was going to be a part two? I mean, uh, it was always uh, in the cards. After we worked on Left Behind, there was there was talk about potentially having a sequel. But uh, that was something that Neil was more or less working on by himself and trying to figure out what what was the worthy story to tell? You know, what was what was worth bringing to that world, uh, expanding upon those characters and so really, we just kind of heads down on the task at hand, which was Uncharted 4, which was a, a very big and long development in and of itself. Um, by the time Lost Legacy rolled around, there was a bit more work in earnest happening on The Last of Us Part Two, And that's really where we started to dig in on the audio side of things and just started to try to figure out exactly what, what we're going to change, what we're going to keep what we need to expand for the scope that the game would eventually uh, undertake. I remember last time Rob and Jonathan too, uh, you guys were both at uh, Naughty Dog back in 2013. Neil and Maggot, when did you guys join? Um, I, I've i been a freelancer for four games. So my first game was Uncharted 3 um, as, a, as, a, as a contractor, uh, in-house contractor. Um, that was in 2011. And then I came back. Uh, Phil Kovats, who was the audio lead at the time, brought me back for um, uh, for The Last of Us. And then I was brought back again for Uncharted 4 and Lost Legacy. So I've been around the studio for, what, nine years now? I, I just, uh, I was hired full-time two years ago. Fantastic. What about you, Megan? Um, I, I joined about midway through um, Lost Legacy to uh, finish that out and then start uh, the last of us part two. So about 2016, 2017. So I missed, I missed you four. I missed the first last of us, but obviously big fan. Um, this is, uh, just to make it known, uh, prior, uh, to the, when I was at a previous game studio, this was like my, on my bucket list. Like this is my exit studio. I work in this studio before I leave this industry. So, um, I don't plan on leaving just so you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, and, and Jonathan, for you, when, when did you join? Um, I joined back in 2003. So I started at the very beginning of Jack 3, and I've been here ever since then. They can't get rid of you. It seems like you've been, you've been kicking butt over there. I, I just, every time I, I see a new game, I am just, I'm thinking of you because I know that the tech does not <laughs> stop. It, it's been incredible to see how it's evolved. And Jonathan always short sells himself, but he is actually the longest tenured programmer 
at Naughty Dog at this point in time. Oh, amazing. That's an interesting bit of trivia. Yeah, it's it's actually true. I've been there longer than any currently employed uh, programmer. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I love working at Naughty Dog and my, uh, my pleasure at working there is, is because it's allowed me to, to segue into sort of the, the specialty subdiscipline of audio programming, because I wasn't hired as an audio programmer. I was just hired as a regular programmer because when I started Naughty Dog only had about, I think like 55 employees. So it's a lot bigger now than it was when I started. And the the thing was back then every programmer they hired had to know how to do everything because they didn't have that big of a programming staff so they had to make sure everybody could do everything but i've always been passionate about audio programming even when i joined the industry back in 1995 i i helped out doing audio programming when i was at westwood studios so uh it's always been a passion of mine but game development has gotten so uh complex now especially for AAA titles that you're seeing uh specialties in all of the major disciplines people are specializing in in physics programming and you know AI programming and audio programming same thing in audio we're getting subdisciplines in audio we're getting subdisciplines a lot of subdisciplines in art so uh basically being in Naughty Dog this long has allowed me to evolve into an audio programmer because I don't know if they they certainly would not have hired an audio programmer in 2003. That was not in the cards. But I've helped out on the audio programming in, on every game that I've done at Naughty Dog. Uh, and the technology, as you pointed out, is, is fascinating to watch it evolve. And I feel like we've worked really hard to try and push that bar up as high as we can, like both for our own studio and for the industry, because we're really passionate about maximizing what we can do to improve immersive storytelling uh, by applying our, our technological skills and craftsmanship. And uh, I can't imagine working anywhere else right now because Naughty Dog at this point fully embraces our team and what we're trying to do. And uh, it's been a long road to get there. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be there now because I feel like things are about to get a lot more exciting in the future because of where the, the technology is headed. So just to kind of paint the picture, obviously we're going to be talking about The Last of Us Part Two. We're going to be diving into a lot of the tech and the sound design and a lot of the creative choices that this team made. There's this period the game comes out, you guys have delivered your gold master and you've had a chance to step away from it. Maybe just before we start to dive in, I'd love to hear just about your thoughts of, you know, what is it like to to release a game now and get that fan reception, to get that feedback from something that you guys have been living with for so long. It's not like this is a small audience. This is an incredibly huge audience that has um, loves this, this franchise. Yeah, I mean, for us, it's really all about trying to see how much that people recognize about the audio. I mean, we put so much fine detail into the in the, the craft and the creation of the audio um, in the game that we're really curious to see how it helps to tell the story in the game, how it supports the gameplay, how successful we are in those things, but also, you know, on the on the fine details, like how much people notice. And um, on this game, probably more than any of our, our, our previous projects, I think there's a lot of detail work that has gone into the audio that has actually been really noticed and recognized and celebrated by a lot of the players. Uh, despite what they may feel about the game, I think people really appreciate the craft uh, and the craftsmanship in which this game was was made. And so that's been really, really exciting, I think, for the whole team to kind of see that our hard work is is recognized and uh, and that people are really enjoying it. 
it's really interesting to put out a project like this that is uh, equivalent of a global event once the game was released and we just saw the, or I saw the overwhelming uh, amount of detail that the fans were covering. For everything from accessibility to like what we did with the whistles and how, how we did, you know, how, how much the ambiences affected people, the music, like even even just commentary on the Foley. It's just something that I haven't seen in other franchises or have been a part of prior to this. So a, a global event is definitely at least the way I, I like to put it. And it's uh, pretty special. I think uh, at least for me personally, I'm still ingesting all of that. <laughs> what about you, Neil? Um, yeah, it's, uh, so I worked before I worked in games, I worked in television commercials. So, you know, every, uh, I did that for at least 10 years before I even touched working on a video game. I've always been a big gamer. Um, but, uh, it was pretty amazing to me. I mean, I, this happened to me a few times, right? Like the last of us was a, a big deal. It was a much bigger deal than I expected it to be. Um, Uncharted 4 was in in some ways, you know, a, a, a much more widespread event, I, I'd say. Like, you know, The Last of Us was pretty narrow at, at the beginning. Its sales were pretty narrow, and, and then it became a much bigger thing. This one hit so big, so hard, and so fast, and, and uh, it was... Uh, I don't normally spend a ton of time on, you know, reading comments on Twitter and things like that, and I did a lot this time, and I was, I was floored by how... Um, how appreciative people were of the sound and sound is just not an art that most people pay attention to. And most of sound's job is just to, to be there to support the story, whether that's film or television or, or, or whatever. And um, I've noticed that people only really notice the sound when it's really bad or when it's really good. Um, And that people noticed it and said it was really good was, uh, was really, um, both a relief and um, uh, and and made me feel like wow this was really something you know you you work on a big project you, you you know you're sitting there you're working on a broken game for two years right you know and then it comes out and and people when they really appreciate it are you you go wow this is really important to people this is really a it felt like a blockbuster it felt like I always kind of wanted to work in the film industry you know uh, when I was younger and and uh, it felt like a giant blockbuster film that got released, you know, and, and uh, I was really pleased, you know, and I was surprised by what people decided that they were fascinated by, you know, like people just, there was huge threads about everybody just breaking every window in the game, you know, um, and, uh, and the rope mechanics, the rope mechanics were something that was just kind of done, you know, it was the, the programmers working on it, you know, did it, uh, Jesse, our, our, uh, one of our new sound designers, did all the sound for it. People just sat there for an hour and just played with all the ropes. You know, it was, uh, you know, it was amazing. So I, I was, I was, I was pleased and surprised like what people decided they thought was important, you know, and, and what stood out to them. So, uh, I was, it's remarkable. It really is remarkable. Yeah. What, what about you, Jonathan? I mean, for someone who is doing stuff behind the scenes, I think as the sound designers are handing off these assets to you that need to be implemented, what is it like to be in your position? Because uh, the technology is just as important as the sounds. I feel like the tools that you're enabling that you're, you know, they say we want to have this feature for a Foley system or a breathing system or a glass breaking system without the engineering thought behind it. It seems that these things wouldn't be possible. So what, what is exciting about for you now that the game has been out and how the fans are responding to your work? Um, well, because I'm a programmer and not a designer, um, you know, I, I mainly work on the, on the, 
side where we, we try to find ways of implementing technology that will enable the creative vision of the sound designers to, uh, to be realized. And I do get a thrill from doing complex things, especially things that are novel or unique or maybe things that have never been done before. And I felt like, you know, on this game, there were a few things we did that were, that were really novel and unique. Uh, one of them was the, uh, the, uh, what we call the murmuration system. It's basically a breathing system, but it's actually more than that because it also, basically we completely changed the way that we manage systemic, uh, breathing, uh, for all the characters in the game, the NPCs and the player characters, as well as some of the creatures like the dogs and the horses. And it was an incredible sound design challenge because we had to go out and record a bunch of stuff that we didn't have. But then it was also a technical challenge because we had to figure out both creatively, how would you stitch these things together even and make it sound realistic? And then once you figure that out, it's like, okay, I know how to stitch this together and make it sound good. Now, how can we get the game to try and stitch this stuff together? Uh, and so I had to work pretty closely with uh, one of our sound designers, uh, Bo Jimenez, to uh, to actually uh, try and figure all that out. And it was really difficult because we didn't really have uh, a lot of references to go on. I mean, sometimes when you're making a game, you can you can get inspiration and reference from other media, but for something like this that's heavily interactive, there's really no inspiration to draw from uh, linear media. You're, 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 you, you have, the only thing you can draw on is from other examples in the game industry. And, and when there are none, then you're sort of like in uncharted territory, no pun intended, where you have to kind of figure it out yourself. And, uh, but I'm really proud of how the system works because not only is it completely seamless the way that it stitches, but a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is to get that to work with animations because in the past, Everything has been animation driven, and some of our things still are. Some of our sounds still are animation driven, where you basically have an animation, and you have uh, you know what we call tags, which are applied on keyframes, so that when an animation starts to play, it can play one-shot sounds at different points along the timeline in the animation to be synchronized with the animation, because sounds need to be synchronized with the animation. But when you're dealing with things that are systemically generated on the fly you can't have the animation drive the sounds because you don't know when you're pulling a sound from a bucket, every breath isn't the same length. You know, it just doesn't work. So we actually had to work with the animation department to figure out a way to get the animations to be driven by the sounds, which we had never done before. Uh, and that was pretty challenging too. But I mean, the best example of that I can think of is the dog. Just get to the part of the game where you're playing with the dog and interact with the dog. And it, it, it's easy to miss how amazing that bit of technology is because it looks and sounds the way that you would expect it to sound, <laughs> which is why a lot of people are like, Oh, cool. There's a dog, cute doggy. Let's play with the doggy. But we're like, you have no idea how difficult it was to get this dog to yeah. sound like a natural, normal dog. <laughs> it was actually really, really hard, but the results are amazing. Like I've, I literally almost wept when I, when I heard this working, cause I'm like, I had no idea it would turn out this good. We didn't know if it was going to sound like, garbage or if we could just like hope for the best and like deal with all the warts but it actually ended up sounding amazing and i'm really proud of that um one of the other things that i'm really proud of that i i worked with rob on was the uh uh we we use convolution reverbs throughout our games we've been doing that for a few games now and uh we actually have i don't think people appreciate how many we have we literally rob could probably ex expand on this but we have hundreds of convolution reverbs in the game uh, but those are always for the environments. They've never been used on anything else because we don't really have 
enough horsepower to do it like on a per voice basis for the sounds themselves. So we only generally do it on submixes of sounds that are rendered for an entire space, like a particular room or an environment. Um, but for this game, we really wanted to try and up the quality of the, uh, of the futzing that we did for the player characters and the buddy characters, because we wanted to get that immersion nailed because in the past, whenever we've had to do futzing, there was always a bit of a mismatch between the futzing that we do uh, you know, at Formosa for our cutscenes and the stuff that we do in the game because they're done differently. One is recorded into a, into a cinematic audio track. The other is dynamically generated in the game. And they generally don't match because uh, you know, the stuff that's baked into the cinematic is done using a DAW software and it's, and it's done with the proper uh, reverb. But in the game, we could never afford to do that. But this time around, we figured out a way of making some careful choices that allowed us to actually use convolution reverbs for the futzing in, in the actual player and buddy uh, dialogue. So when Ellie and Dina go put their gas masks on, it actually is a proper futz with a real uh, convolution on it, and it sounds like a real gas mask, and it matches the cinematics perfectly. And again, it's one of those things I'm super proud of because we've never done it before, and I've, I don't, I'm not going to say no other game has done it because that would be, that would be uh, arrogant because I don't know for sure that they haven't, but I've never heard of any other game trying to, to go to that length to match it. And again, it's one of those subtle things that because it sounds like you would expect it to sound, you don't notice it. But it was an amazingly difficult technical challenge to pull off. But it's those kind of little subtle details uh, that really matter to me because it's the things that break the immersion, that break the fourth wall, that draw attention to the fact that, hey, this is a video game. Those are the things that annoy me. And those are the things that as we move forward, we try to keep raising the bar, we keep trying to find ways of streamlining and, and improving the immersive experience so that the sound design is, is basically seamless. Um, and we've, still, we're, we're, we've got other ideas. We're going to be doing more moving forward. I mean, there's, there's always more to do. That's, thank you so much for that explanation because I think people forget this is a video game. This is not a live action or animated feature film or TV show. And some of the things we take for granted that just happen on a in a typical production, you have to start from scratch. It is a completely blank canvas. So going back to my understanding, the end of 2017 was maybe one of the first record trips or what uh, Rob said was the first time you guys recorded weapons with um, Frank Bry. So like when you go out to do this record trip, what was your laundry list of the weapons that you needed to record? Because it seems that like the quantity is pretty incredible. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it was a very big recording trip. Like you said, it's the first one we've ever done in the history of Night before now we've um, sufficed with libraries and personal recordings and um, kind of cobbled things together um, based upon our systems evolution from Uncharted 4 and the Lost Legacy we knew very much more how we wanted to record the weapons to fit the way that the system worked before we kind of just had to make do with what we had and so based on that we we came up with a list of weapons that we thought we would need for Last of Us Part 2 but we also added to that extra weapons that we thought we might need in the future because we don't know if we're ever going to get to do another one of these things again. So um, we called up our buddy Frank and I, ha I have to take a sidebar and just say uh, Frank Bree is one of the most awesome human beings I've ever met in my life. He's extremely sharing with knowledge and an extraordinary recordist and he's just a, he's just an awesome human being, but he's super, super talented. So getting to go record with him in the middle of the winter, in the middle of the cold, um, could have been a miserable experience, but man, it was such a joy going out there and, uh, to the, the wilds of Idaho and, uh, and recording the weapons, but really, yeah, coming up with the big list was, um, 
it was more about what we knew at the time, which actually did change by the time we were done, but also uh, what we thought we might need for the future. In addition to actually, you know, recording close-up sounds of the weapons, we also recorded a lot of material for Foley for reloads and for operation and Foley and handling. In addition to um, distant shots to model things, because um, in the game, as you played, there's a lot of sort of distant battle happening. And all of that material was recorded um, by us fresh in Idaho in environments that sort of matched roughly what we needed, which were not completely urban, but also not completely uh, rural. It was somewhere in between. We called it the semi-urban kind of, um, you know, atmosphere we were trying to capture. And I think uh, being out in the snow, um, it gave us a nice dead layer, but being near structures or woods or hills still gave us a, an interesting amount of report and reverb to work with. Uh, in addition to that, we recorded lots of bullet impacts because we wanted to... Um, kind of get more specific bullet handbacks. Again, we, we were using a lot of library stuff at the time, and which is great. It's actually a lot of Frank stuff in his bullet libraries. But we wanted to augment that with specific surfaces that we knew we were going to need. Um, and Frank was able to come through and we were able to get some really great stuff. One, one of my favorite surfaces that we recorded was actually uh, corrugated metal. He basically just went over to uh, his armorer's barn, Taylor, and he just pulled out this giant piece of corrugated metal and we just like shoved it onto a snowbank and shot it a few times. And it was interesting, made a nice thunk and clang. But because it was against the snowbank, it didn't sort of bounce and, and, and shake. So we actually like shoved it into the snowbank. So it was kind of like standing upright, wobbly. And then we shot it that way as well. And uh, that had a, just a great wobble and ronk as it moved around after it was being shot, um, which was really, really fun. And it sounded really great. It sounded different than the, the, the first version. Um, but yeah, we, we tried to get as much material as possible while we were out there. In addition, when we had downtime, because we're crazy recordists, we would go out in the cold and we found some on the property of the armor that we were on. There was an old derelict house. And so we just set up some mics in there and we recorded some wind blowing through this old derelict house. And we would have somebody go up to the second floor and kind of stomp around to get some sound of the house creaking or uh, uh, footsteps above. There's lots of pine trees around blowing in the wind. There was a barn that had this great big door that we recorded. I mean, it was just outside of the weapons, the going to a place that is more rural and deals with, with weather in that way. So where things are a little more broken down, a little more rusty was perfect for the world of The Last of Us. I mean, that's exactly what we need. And it's really hard to find those things in L.A., as you can imagine. Sure. Yeah. One of the other aspects, I mean, like there's this weapon workbench, Ellie or Abby can like work on their weapons. I remember the first time I came across this and I was like, oh my gosh, the amount of detail 
and the system behind it like you hear her interacting you hear the details so this wasn't necessarily like a new aspect but it felt like it was new from a sound standpoint what was in terms of the records and then what was the technology behind it so technology wise it was it was actually um it was one of those beautiful times where as a sound person, we got pulled in very early to the design process. So I was able to participate in meetings and design conversations with design and animation. And I'm kind of a gun guy, I kind of have a, a pretty good knowledge of guns. So I was able to influence the way that some of the animations looked to be a little more correct for the types of weapons that we're dealing with, um, which helps us as sound people because then we it's much easier to go, okay, I know how this bolt works. We have a recording that's roughly correct from what we did in Idaho. Um, it makes our job a little bit easier, but it makes the whole experience feel, I think, a lot more solid and realistic and believable, which is the goal, right? It's There's a little bit of sleight of hand happening to, to make it um, faster than it would be in real life. In terms of the recording process, that was kind of a two-stage recording process. We had to, you know, wait for the animations to be completed, of which there's quite a few, and they're very, very detailed. And we worked with our partners over at uh, Paramount, our, uh, our friends on the Foley stage there, Don, Alicia, and David. And um, they gave us a full suite of their type of sounds, um, which is a lot of the up and down onto the wood plank of the of the workbench. We also got metal variants for the metal type workbenches. Um, and in addition to that, in my office, I pulled out a big piece of wood and a bunch of airsoft guns and other prop guns and things and just went to town recording literally everything I could. And hilariously, the tools that are on the workbench I actually have almost the exact same tools that they modeled the tools after. So I brought those in and just started dropping them around, moving them around, taking apart a real, you know, magazine and messing with the spring and pushing it in and out of like the hollow cavity of a, of a magazine. It just gives you that nice, realistic feeling detail. And it's just like really satisfying, almost ASMR like clickety clacks, uh, which um, I think turned out really nice. I'm, I'm really proud of, uh, of how that all turned out. And like I said, it was really great being involved in the design process from an early standpoint. That's awesome. Um, two of the, the things that we mentioned before was the breathing system and the glass break. So maybe just focus on the glass break, because once again, like Jonathan hinted, it's something that it's pretty complex. Uh, Neil, I mean, I'd love to understand this glass breaking, the system or the sounds and like it, do, it doesn't really seem to me that like uh, it was just like a library of sounds like there's a lot more dynamics and other variables that come into play when it comes to breaking glass. I think I'll let Rob, uh, Rob take that because he worked more <laughs> Rob's with shaking the, his head. The, 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 we had hired a new, a new sound designer named Jesse. And uh, that was one of the things that we really wanted to make really satisfying. And Rob was much more involved uh, with that particular thing than I was. I'm going to kick it back to you, though, because there's an important component that that Neil absolutely has um, a lot of experience with. But in terms of like the the goals for it, working with Jesse Garcia, who's the sound designer that put it all together, um, making it feel satisfying to break and then also dealing with all the systems that are involved it's a very complicated system it seems like it's not but it is so the windows themselves need to shatter and the sound design process there and the and the, the guidance to jesse was it needs to sound tonal right 
big big panes of glass have a tone to them when when you hit them and that's part of the satisfying like thunk of it And then having different scale and size of tone based on the size of the window. Uh, that combined with debris that's randomized. And then there's a physics layer. So there's chunks that break off that are actually physicalized. And that's, I think, something um, in addition to that, there's particles that actually lay glass on the ground. And that's what I'm going to kick back to Neil, because those two aspects I know Neil can definitely comment on. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so while Jesse was working on these glass break sounds, we had these test levels that just had, you know, every glass break size and shape that it was going to occur in the game. And so he was testing all of this, uh, all of this stuff at the same time. I, I said, well, look, I mean, we've got to have, you know, there's particles on the ground. There's, there's FX particles on the ground. There's physics. These are all different systems, um, that, that work. And I, and I said, well, I, you know, I'm a detail freak. And, and I said, well, I want to make sure that we get, um, we get the sound of crunching glass underfoot, right? Let, let's just see if we can get that. The physics layer, it, it, it's like you, you hit a break-off piece, and then it, it just slides around on the ground. But I wanted that crack, that crunch. And when we were on the Foley stage at Paramount, I, I spent uh, 40 days on the, or 40 plus days on the Foley stage at Paramount, um, you know, long eight hour day sessions recording every surface that we, you know, had in the game. Uh, one of the, they have a big glass pit. And so, uh, we recorded a bunch of glass and then I had to work with several sets of programmers, uh, and the FX department to, and one of the very, uh, crucial gameplay programmers who's, who's, uh, fairly audio centric, uh, a guy named, um, uh, Khan Shu. And he is, uh, He's an amazing, an amazing programmer, um, and he's he he's, he he's a he just he he understands the gameplay side of things extremely well. And so we had we had to change the way we detect surfaces. We had to integrate uh, two different systems or three different systems actually um, to get glass just to sound like when you break the glass and it falls on the ground, it makes a crackling sound. And uh, one, of the thi- one of the things we did was um, normally probes, uh, uh, foot probes would come out and they'd be a single pixel. And then whatever pixel they would see would be the, the thing. We couldn't use that because sometimes you'd miss the glass. So the, uh, the graphics programmers had to change how the foot probes worked so that they were multi-sampling. So um, now the same foot probe, so it was no more expensive than it was before in terms of processing power. But uh, now the same probe had, had uh, uh, four or five, I, th- I think we settled on four, four different uh, sample points. So uh, based on that, then I could get data, how much, you know, how much was sampled of the background, how much was sampled of the foreground, um, and, and then play an appropriate bucket of sounds for how much glass uh, was on the ground. Just so that when you break a window, you, 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 uh, you vault over it right? You hear that glass crunch, you know, on the ground to make you feel like there's a consequence to the, the thing that you just did. Um, and it makes noise, you know, and uh, that could be scary. I don't know, really, I, if anybody noticed, I think maybe I saw one comment, you know, about like, oh, you know, it's like glass breaking underfoot, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, but it actually took a lot of work. 
So I had to work with Jesse with, with the sounds that he was working with and then integrate all the stuff that I was doing, which was just a, a extremely small part, you know, of the entire Foley system, you know, but, uh, I thought it was really great that, that, uh, systems working together like this just to create one, you know, uh, one consequential seamless experience, you know, was, it was, it's really satisfying no matter how long it takes. It's just really satisfying to, to work on that kind of stuff. Yeah, there, there was a wonderful little like compilation online of all the sounds of the glass breaking. Why are we so in the weeds about this stuff? It's because people care. And because when you're breaking dozens of pieces of glass or surfaces, you don't want to hear the same sound. Like it's the, the subtle variety is what actually ultimately makes it more immersive. And um, one of the things that Jonathan mentioned, and I definitely want to have a chance to talk with you, Jonathan, but I want to talk about the breathing system. But uh, Maggot, maybe you can go into detail about recording those breaths. I feel like there's a lot of question from people online of asking like, what is it like to work with the actors? So maybe um, take us through building this breathing system. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so this was something that we, that uh, during our E3 demo, I had uh, done a prototype for in just Justin Reaper for our our Seraphite investigation in the makeup shop, and I, I wanted to have a a breathing dynamic or see if it was actually even doable. If it was just going to be something that was just going to be like all white noise in the background, um, so we we did a we did a. I did a quick prototype, did some panning, did like a rough mix of just like, this is what it should feel like. Um, doing search, like corner checks, things of that nature. And it, and it proved to be something that, that, that was uh, something that we, that, that we did enjoy. And um, uh, in addition to the fact, I think what the main proponent for what we're hearing for the player is um, for the entire demo, we recorded one full playthrough, uh, did a video capture, brought it to ADR, and I worked with Ashley Johnson so that she could chase the entire demo, just so that we could get the variety of intensity. So it wasn't like a formal uh, effort session as what we, basically what we call it. Uh, so we did it in a linear fashion so that she chased it like maybe five or six times and just gave us a ton of gold that we then broke down into systems. Uh, systems that we know that we were gonna get anyway, some of which we already had, but um, a lot of it just was her running around and just 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 uh you know being chased and getting shot and dodging bullets and picking up stuff then going into stealth uh and that is what um at least i think the really early stages of what we didn't know was going to become a breathing system so working with uh with bo jimenez our, our one of our sound designers um uh he he had a really clear idea as to how to execute it into a system um i mean him mostly just conceptualized some of the uh some of the like the anatomy of breathing and stuff like that like when when they're in stealth they're mostly breathing through nose when they're when they're close to an enemy uh, and then they open their mouth when they're away and it's just that that tension and release based upon the state of the player and the proximity of danger so if they're within combat um, there is a different breathing set uh, there is there's there's uh, levels of exhaustion that to account for that for all three states whether it's ambient stealth or combat
working with the actors, uh, uh, pretty much the majority of our cast, uh, they're all they're all about it. They're all about trying to make uh, trying to make the game cool, uh, approaching things in a way that that might not be the conventional method of of like how it's done for other studios and stuff like that. So when we come up with a cool system, they're usually you know like yeah, let's do it. So um, it took approximately I would say maybe three to four sessions per uh, per per main character per Ellie and Abby. Just to get the entire breathing down, because uh, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty intensive set. Because uh, the, like breaking it down into a system is that we need enough material, not so much that we're recording like running for one state for ten minutes. We really just need like sixty seconds of that material so that we could break it down into a system. Then then start to think about what are the gotchas? How do we how do we uh, how do we stop from from each state? How do we slow down? How do we ramp up? Um, and uh, just getting that material, just it requires pacing. And the sessions were, you know, generally like about one hour, hour and a half, depending upon how much material we could get. Uh, it was generally generally an hour because, again, uh, you don't want your actors to black out. <laughs> and uh, uh, getting lightheaded in those kinds of sessions is is a thing. And we very much care about um, the health of the actor because the more comfortable they are, the more they're going to want to deliver, right? So it's uh, uh, just as much as like um, the philosophy behind audio in any experience is to be as as invisible as possible so that it is a part of the experience. Uh, we try to create that setting in the studio while we're recording so that there's not about a, a bunch of self-consciousness or anything that or an uncomfortable anything that would be uncomfortable outside the realm of what might be an uncomfortable scene for the character, right? Uh, so we're trying to create that uh, that setting as much as possible. Uh, so yeah, it it was it was definitely um, it was definitely a, a a great experience. Really fun no, getting to see that come to life, knowing where it came from. It was just an idea that then evolved into an entire system that me and Bo went to get and to hear the success of it, even early prototypes of it. Um, uh, uh, Bo was showing me a bunch of different things really early on and I gave some 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 ideas uh, or some notes in terms of tuning, uh, but Bo really drove that entire system. He did an excellent job, better than I think any of us really anticipated. Yeah, he. I, I just want to just chime in there for a second. Bo really... He, uh, it's a sophisticated system that's driven by a lot of a lot of uh, variables from the game and it, and it also drives some systems. And so, uh, and I think the overall effect is that you, um, you as a player become tense when Ellie is tense. That that's the goal, right? Is, is always just so that the person who's playing the game, who's the person who's experiencing the media can fully be immersed in it. Um, we, the, mm-hmm. we have a phrase, like when we start working on something, um, it's like, uh Oh, I made a clean spot, right? Like, I, like once I've made this, once I've started cleaning up a particular area, I have to, I have to clean the whole thing. Otherwise it's noticeable that there's a little dirty place. Yeah. Over there. There's a place yeah. that doesn't work. Yeah. Right. So w- our goal is to make those make those experiences, uh, each system that we do and each this and audio, as we like to say, is a, uh, we don't have a, a system. We have a system of systems. We have ways of getting audio into every other system in the game. Um, and in this particular one, it was really made out of whole cloth. And um, 
Uh, and the effect, I think, is fantastic. I think people are just, they're glued to the action. They're glued to the dialogue. They're glued to all of it. And I think uh, unconsciously, you know, uh, yeah. because of the breathing system, it was one of the things that I was the most excited about when I saw Bo working on it. And I thought, of all the things that, you know, people will notice in this game, this is what they'll notice. Like, yeah. you know. The, the, I, I actually, the, I want to uh, say something about the breathing system, too, because I really sure. want to give credit to Bo because Bo did an absolutely fantastic job. Um, his job wasn't just uh, creative. Uh, it was also technical because even though I'm the audio programmer, um, I'm focused on engine audio programming, but we actually use a sound engine called Scream that supports sound scripting. And Bo had to script all the logic for how his sounds worked. Once I fed him the context and state for his stuff, he had to go and implement that in sound scripts. And that's really almost just like programming. And not every sound designer can do that. And I just want to give a shout out to Bo because he did an absolutely fantastic yeah. job with that. It is a truly unique thing to have done. And his synergy of the technical and the creative skills to create that system was nothing short of excellent. Yeah. But I also yeah. want to, I also want to say something else. Like my job in helping Bo with that was to get the engine to feed him the context he needed to play it. And I remember being slightly disappointed early on when I think one of our, uh, I think it was Anthony, uh, was speaking to the public in, in some venue and mentioned the fact that we have this cool, uh, uh, breathing system. And there was, there was some trolls that were like, you know, making fun of it. Like every game's done breathing. Breathing isn't new. There's nothing new about breathing. Like you don't get it. Like this is not just like, okay, we're going to play some breath sound effects and we're going to stitch them together. This is contextual breathing. And, uh, we have this system called the heart rate system. And I think Anthony might've mentioned that. I don't remember if he did or not, but, uh, that's an oversimplification because if you think, Oh, it's just measuring the player's health. No, it's actually a dynamic measurement of the state of the character's fear level and their yeah. fear and health combined in a level. But it's even more than that. There's a lot of context feeds into this breathing. Uh, things like if you're in stealth mode and you crouch to aim, your character holds their breath and you hear the sharp intake of breath. And then the subsequent breathings are all like muffled, short, like uh, gas type breaths. And then you read the sigh of re relaxation when you succeed at that or when you exit that yeah. state. Uh, it's not just breathing stitched together. It's an entire contextual system that is affected by the mood, the emotion, the state, and the fear of the character. It's very detailed and very complex. Yeah, and it's, it's very truly amazing. Yeah, one, one in particular, I was going to say, uh, is with the character of Abby, one big component of her character and part of the storytelling is that she has a fear of heights. And so part of that fear of heights is anytime that you're close to the ledge and you look and you physically look down as a player, this is completely dynamic. It's not pre-scripted. This happens based on player behavior. A bunch of things happen to uh, kind of help you feel exactly what the character is feeling. And one of those things is the breath. <sighs> the breath gets into a more panic state and it also drives she she'll lift her shoulders up and she'll kind of bring her hands in and that's all driven by the audio and she's her face is emoting and that's all driven by the audio and there's a little bit of a mix move. And it's just, it's one of these things where all this technology 
and all the recording and the work with the voice actors all comes together to be a part of the storytelling. And that is, I think, you know, one of my favorite sort of uses of the murmuration system because it so strongly supports what we're trying to tell as storytellers. That's awesome. Thank you guys so much for sharing that background. It's once again, it's like you take it for granted because you're like, yeah, this is what someone sounds like when they're running away from a horde of infected. But it obviously like I played the game on headphones in stereo and I just know that it's just as terrifying. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the, it's the emotion that carries through. It's things that as humans, we pick up on, even though they feel subtle, they're incredibly effective. And um, talking about a f being effective, the enemies in this game, uh, I feel like, you know, if there's a video game that really relies on sound, it would be The Last of Us because these characters just feed on sounds that Ellie and Abby and everyone makes. I love just to to start talking about some of these enemies in, in this game the infected we have the return of the runners the stalkers the clickers the shamblers the bloater and the rat king not even to bring bring in the human characters but something about this game that i picked up on on part two was with the clickers there was a subtle thing like when you get closer that there'd be a twitch the reaction of the clicker, it felt different. It felt like this guy got smarter and he also is listening and hearing differently and emoting sounds differently. But just focusing on some of these infected, I, I feel like what were some of the new sounds that had to be introduced because we have new voice actors, there's a new system. And then there's also a kind of a return of honoring uh, one of your friends, Phil, of uh, per per performing his, uh, his sounds. So um, why don't you guys dive into that? Yeah, we we actually actually brought so Phil Kovacs very famously um, was the voice of the male clicker for the uh, for the Last of Us Part One, and uh, he has since moved on from Naughty Dog. But because he was so integral in coming up with the the sound of the clicker, we brought him back as a voice actor, which was pretty cool. I think I believe that it is is his first voice credit. He got a he got a, a union card and everything so that he could come in. Yeah, so he could come in and do that, um, which was pretty awesome. But um, by and large, because of the fact that we moved to a motion matching animation system on The Last of Us Part One, everything was sort of canned animations. So all the sounds were edited specifically to individual animations. The infected use uh, motion matching and what motion matching is, it's an entirely blended animation system where at any given point in time, you are in some state of blend between one, two to three to four to five different animations all at once. And it's literally like stealing pixels from each to come up to an amalgamation of a new look. And what that meant was we couldn't really use the same methodology anymore. And so the murmuration system is not just used for breathing, but it's also used for the infected. And uh, and that's another Bo gem, man. Uh, Bo Jimenez did, again, a fantastic job adapting the the heart rate system for infected. And we worked together to record with the actors to try to still honor the same vibes that the first game came up with, right? It's still the same world. We're not reinventing these characters from scratch. It's more we had to expand the palette that was required to go up and down the emotional range of these creatures.
it's funny that you mentioned the head turns for the clickers because that was a, a specific thing that we wanted to make sure that actually had sync with sound because previously it was a little floaty in the first game they do head turns and twitches and all kinds of stuff and maybe it would line up maybe it wouldn't it would kind of it wasn't very exact um the way this one worked is Bo came up with uh, you know working with Jonathan as as well as um Eli Omerick one of our other programmers came up with a system that there were animations that we called jolts that are those little head twitches that actually would interrupt a murmuration system of you know whatever the normal level of breathing for that creature is so for if you're if it's a clicker just wandering around, it's just sort of making disturbing sounds as it's choking and trying to breathe. But it does a little head turn and you get an animation that fires off a specific sound. So it transitions out of the murmuration into a specific designed thing and then back straight in and it's completely seamless. We actually spend a long time with each voice actor, of which there are many, um, for the infected, specifically getting those jolt takes because it was important to us that we had that tight sync because it really gives you a sense of dread and a sense of panic when those two things line up. Um, it is it is something that it just augments what was already great about the original designs of the infected that were done by Phil um, and Derek Espino as well as Eric Ocampo uh, on the first game. They came up some, with a fantastic starting point for us to kind of stand on the shoulders of and. Um, really the, with combination of, of what we wanted to do as well as motion matching kind of led us down this path of a lot bigger palette of sounds that we had to, that we had to get from the actors. To me, the stalkers, there's the quintessential nightmare of a player. They're quiet. You don't know where they are. Uh, something that, that came into play, which was um, the listening mode, obviously, we had before, but the, the ducking and the mixing, um, something that, you know, like your, you know, Ellie or, or Abby can like go into this listening mode and you start to I try identify. But with with the stalkers, there is no there is no sound. You can't identify where they are. And so you really go into like a hide and go seek mode. Maybe you can talk about this because like there was a hint of the stalkers in the first part, but now we really interact with them. That's right. The stalkers were kind of a cool um, area and opportunity for a bit more redesign because on the first game, they were in more or less one area and they came on very, very, very late in the first game. And so they didn't really have the opportunity to get the the same amount of love that the runners and clickers and bloater um, got in the first Last of Us. But Given the opportunity, I know Bo worked very closely with the design department on trying to redefine what a stalker is to make it a unique experience. And uh, for my money, it is probably quintessential horror. Uh, I don't know if many people um, consider The Last of Us a horror game. I do. But I think the moments that you have to deal with the stalkers, it absolutely becomes a horror game more than in any other part. And a lot of that is down to the design is that they are mostly quiet unless they are moving. And even when they are moving, they are sort of just wheezing and barely making much sound. They have jolts just like the other infected, but they really aren't. They're actively trying to to quiet themselves. And if you see the animations, like they're 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 internal and they they have quadruped movement where they use their hands. They're trying very hard to not be heard because they sort of have this ambush technique that they use.
Getting that dialed in to where it was terrifying, part of that was listen mode. So listen mode does have a mix move that happens where we pull the ambience down a bit. We boost up the foley a little bit of enemies. We pull down the player's uh, foley a little bit. We pull down the player's breathing just slightly and we amplify just about everything else. And for human enemies, it's really useful because you can you can really get a bead on just by listening where people are at. Uh, with stalkers, uh, you can't because they're by and large basically silent, even if they're like right on the other side of the wall from you, you really have to strain. You might be able to just, just make out the hint of their wheezy breathing, but really it's, uh, it was, it was a tremendous effort working with the design department to make those things sing together. Uh, cause they, they were very different than all the other enemy types. Jonathan, can you help describe this ducking and mixing of the listen mode? Because to me, there was a subtle difference between the last of us, the first one and the second one here, what was changed and what do you think was, um, the takeaway, um, why it was so effective this time around? Well, just in general, like the whole ducking and missing systems that we use in this game have been completely revamped. I mean, we could probably do an entire one-hour talk just on on dynamic mixing and the the parametric dynamic range techniques that we've evolved in our game engine. Uh, and Rob would be the best person to talk about that because as the guy who makes the game, he he used all the knobs I gave him and then asked for more, and then I gave him more knobs, and he asked for more knobs, and then I gave him more knobs. Uh, but in the context of listen mode specifically. Uh, basically we, we have a concept of, uh, mix snapshots and mix biases. So we can either switch to a different mix, uh, entirely, which is a snapshot, or we can make a relative mix move, which we call a mix bias snapshot. And we apply both of those in the case of, uh, of the game and in listen mode, where there's, a, there's a bias where we basically, like Rob said, we pull some things down, we boost other things. But beyond that, outside of the mixer, there are other audio things going on as well because we actually turn on a cone filter that's directional. And we do that because it basically ends up allowing listen mode to become like sonar. So as you spin the camera around, you'll still hear everything, but when you aim towards the source of the sound, it will boost it. So it helps you hone in on the uh, the bird's eye direction of, uh, you know, straight line direction of the sound source uh, which will, which can be accompanied by a visual effect as well with an outline or a, an animation of a in uh, you know in listen mode you get the visual effect too of the things emitting sounds. But like Rob said, in some cases like when the game is being really quiet, listen mode isn't necessarily going to help you. You have to end up straining to hear everything, which is I think the coolest thing about our game is that we do have the luxury of making the type of game and getting the support for, for designing the sound design for a game that has a really, really wide dynamic range. And Rob's probably the best guy to expand on that. But to my mind, this is probably the widest dynamic range game I think we've ever made. I think, would you say that Rob? Yeah, I, I think so. I think short of the last of us, the first last of us, um, this one definitely hits the mark for our widest dynamic range. Definitely. That's awesome. It, it's something that I, I think it comes through. Like I said, I was on headphones and to me, <laughs> when it's subtle, it's subtle and it's quiet. It's still terrifying and the loud moments, it's very effective. Um, anything else you guys want to share about the infected? I mean, I feel like the, the just the shamblers and the rat king and themselves are pretty much a terrifying moment. Terrifying I feel moment. like that's it, it's a whole podcast in and of itself to talk about infected. And I feel like doing Bo a disservice because really he was the, the champion of that stuff. Uh, I will say the the 
you know, the Shambler, Bo did a lot of custom recording uh, in his office, a lot of disgusting, horrible sounds that he um, that he made. The whole direction was that it was sort of this wet, phlegmy, old man sounding creature. The whole mythos is that it basically spews this toxic cloud of just wet, dank, disgusting acidic spores that burn the player. Um, and so a lot of that design was driven by that sort of thought process, which was just wet and moist and uh, disgusting. He has some great stories of um, using a, a bellows filled with oatmeal and chewing up power bars and then half choking on them in his office. Just I think he had to throw really... that bellows away, right? Because it oh, yeah. like, ended up getting like moldy or something. Like, it got infested it with flies, I think. It was really <laughs> gnarly. But uh, just some awesome recording for that. And then um, the Rat King in particular, um, the one story I will tell, which I think is really fantastic and a testament to Bo's collaboration, um, was the introduction when you're in the ambulance. When that first came online, it was much faster, actually. And Bo, credit to him, saw it as an opportunity for sound to play more of a role. And so he talked with Neil Druckmann, our director, as well as uh, Jeremy Yates, our, one of our lead animators, and brought them in and said, hey, you know, what if we make this a little bit longer? What if we expand some of these parts? What if we make this pose last a little longer so we can have a little bit more of a scream? Um, and I think that intro is extremely effective. The way it vibrates the whole interior of the of the ambulance, you you hear it well before you see it, and then once you see it, it's utterly terrifying. Uh, and that's, I think that's, uh, if I can say, that's our Resident Evil moment in many ways. It's much more of a uh, a, a combat horror freakout creature as opposed to more of the humanity that we try to, you know, instill in a lot of the other infected. They're still all based in human uh, vocalizations. Whereas the Rat King, I think we we had a little more creative uh, leeway to go a little bit more uh, into the subjective realm, um, which I think was really effective. I think it's a very, very creepy moment in the game. I love that intro. I think it's so effective. Uh, but yeah, I think Bo is, is, um, one of our most talented creative sound designers that we have, and he did a really fantastic job with, with all the infected.
one of the other new enemies we have is the Seraphites, these scars, and there's this fantastic introduction of their language, of the whistles, and um, the first time you get attacked by them, you're in a really interesting environment where you can't see them, but you do hear them. So maybe give a little context of the whistle language, how it came about, and then how you guys evolved that into being something that to me is just <laughs> a very effective enemy that you really just fear because you don't know what they're saying, but they have some language behind it. Really early on, uh, we were doing some, some at least some background study on the at least their origin story uh, with our uh, lead uh, concept artist, uh, Ashley Swadowski, and uh, also with Hallie Gross. And uh, we were talking about like what their lifestyle was and understanding that from a dialogue perspective, just for any character building, I, I want to know the lore about everything. So uh, we knew... Um, even before then, uh, that we wanted to have some sort of ominous communication between the between the uh, the Seraphites amongst themselves that would not be easily decoded by the player um, or even the player character. So uh, we we explored a bunch of different things of like them using like some sort of like wood instruments. Uh, we knew that whistling was a part of it. Um, and, uh, we did a ton of research, uh, just with, um, hunter whistles. I happened to be in Egypt during the revolution. Uh, so during, uh, during that time they would do call outs and like, almost like lighting a, a torch on top of mountaintops to, uh, to propagate knowledge that there were, uh, people that were coming to, to harm us essentially, uh, from, uh, the top balconies of the apartment building. So they would do these whistles. Um, and then we finally found a, a, uh, documentary of, uh, La Gomera, Spain, which is an island that has an existing, uh, whistle language, which was, uh, really interesting to us. And we, uh, we, we pulled and it, it once we knew that we, that this knowledge across the studio of just like, oh, we want to have a whistle language, just, this was also sort of picked up by our lead editor, Joe, and he pulled like references from this uh, documentary and all that stuff and put it into like just just prototyping some some just rough things here and there for, our, I think, our early green light demo. Um, and uh, once we started to realize that it was a it was a legit language, we um, we decided that we wanted to record something that initially was supposed to be really really ambiguous and blended into the environment. So we, we casted a, uh, a, a talented whistler that had a musical background, but it sounded too musical. It sounded like bird calls. So it blended in too much and it didn't really communicate the urgency. So we realized that the only way to really do that to, to cover distance, you have to do hand whistles. And the La Gomera is like the quintessential example of that because most of their whistling is hand whistling so that they can modulate their, their lips and their mouth so that it actually has different tonalities. They're basically playing an instrument. So we knew that we wanted to do that. So um, in a pinch, because E3 was coming up and we had to, we had to really, really prove this uh, for, for the demo, uh, I just sent out an email company-wide, hey, who could whistle? And uh, 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 Maria Capel, who, who is our lead uh, UI designer, she uh, she replied back and um, her, her grandfather is actually from the Canary Islands in Spain and taught her how to whistle. And she whistles 
very loud. <laughs> so uh, the initial recordings for that were were me and Maria doing all of the uh, just the really odd modulating whistles and stuff like that. Um, she came up with most of the ideas, to be honest. Uh, she just was just doing all kinds of just crazy things um, while whistling. And um, uh, I just gave her like really examples of like really what, like loud and urgent whistles. Then I started to modulate as well. And um, it's a full dynamic range because they, if you, when you're playing, if, if you played it already against the Seraphites, they have quiet whistles where they're in search and they don't want to, you know, to, to give any tells besides hand gestures of just like, go this way, I'm going to search this way. And it's just really quick, you know, those really soft, subtle whistles. So it, it, it plays into the dynamic of, uh, of the range that we have for dialogue in general. And we have like, for dialogue, we have six projection levels. So it's, it's super, super dynamic seven if we're including breathing. Um, so, uh, with that said, we recorded all that material, uh, which a ton, with a ton of variety. And we had our dialogue coordinator, Grayson, come up with, uh, a language, essentially, just coming up with whistles that actually, s that felt like it was giving you the sense that there was direction, um, that there was communication. Uh, from there, we, we, as a committee, kind of looked at everything together. I started to organize as to like what sounded like this call that represented in our dialogue system as a as a call, like a check-in and then a response. Uh, and then like spotting an enemy, whatever felt like really urgent. We played with all kinds of variety. And um, uh, uh, Grayson really, really, really crushed it when it came to coming up with the master whistles. So we brought that into the studio uh, with, uh, two, uh, and casted two other whistlers that, um, that was able to replicate our whistles to, to the exact pitch, just manufacture synthesized whistles, which is really, really difficult to do based upon how, uh, Grayson designed it. Uh, and, uh, we all, I, I, then I started to think about like, you know, it would be kind of weird and just not, uh, respectful of the world that we were, that we were creating that every, Seraphite was the perfect whistler. And, you know, the, the backstory for this is that they teach this, you know, from, you know, they teach this to their children. So children are able to whistle, as you can see in Yara and Lev. Um, that said, uh, we wanted, we wanted to come up with a, uh, a degradation system as to like from an expert whistler or a master whistler to someone who could barely whistle. So we had the whistlers replicate each whistle, hear the master whistle, copy it. Okay, now give me a, give me something that with a bit more variance and slight slight off pitch, and then another one where it's just like, okay, you could you could whistle, but not great. And there's wind there's wind breaks and there's you know pitch cracking and just sometimes just pure silence, uh, just for a millisecond, just that dropout, just enough to give you that that sense that. These are, these are people, these are humans trying to communicate in a language enough so to where there are speech impediments. There are, there are lisps in this language, even though it is whistling. You know what I mean? So, um, once, once we, once we, once we figured out how well that would work as a system 
based upon our current dialogue system, we realized that, uh, okay, now I, I think we, I think we finally came up with something that sounded very human and we didn't want uh, ominous, but human. And that's the, I didn't want to remove it from, from that, from that place of just like, this is still coming from people. They're not just creatures and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So, but they're very one with nature. They're minimalistic people. Uh, weapons, weapons are dirty and they're reserved for soldiers. It's that kind of stuff. It's all that background that kind of played into their minimalistic nature as to their attire and their lifestyle. So it's, um, uh, I, I think, I, I hope we, I hope we did it justice. I think we did well. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible to hear all the, all the context because it really plays into just this, the experience. Um, one other aspect that I want to pull out, a subtle thing. Well, it's not subtle, actually. It's, it's with Ellie's guitar playing. Um, it's this wonderful story point between Ellie and Joel. And Ellie slowly learns to play guitar. And uh, for someone who does play guitar, I'm like, oh, I wonder if the, the fingering is correct. Yeah, the fingering is correct. Oh, how does the strumming react? Oh, the strumming is correct. So I'm like, you guys do not let any details go uh, unchecked. So talk to me about building Ellie's guitar because it, there's a whole like guitar hero inside of The Last of Us. <laughs> and there's an engine behind that too. So talk to me about that. Yeah, so it was uh, it was really interesting, um, the whole guitar mechanic. Um, the way it started, it was really driven by uh, two designers who um, really were responsible for, for selling it. It was Mark Burroughs and Grant Host. And those guys really were the impetus behind having it be in the game so much as it was. There was always music, there was always songs, but they were more in a cutscene kind of manner where you might play the first few notes and then it just plays itself. The The whole mini game aspect was really driven by those guys and they started with um, just some very basic like iPhone samples just to get something going. Uh, once we got a hold of it though, we worked with our partners over at um, PDSG uh, the music group at Sony and it was really important that these guitars matched exactly the guitars that were in the cinematics that preceded and and followed and so we ended up sampling three guitars of full note sets all the way through as well as uh, if you've gone all the way through to the end of the game a um, we sampled a set that was not played so well uh, for reasons that the game will explain. Um, and the challenge really was how realistic can we get it? The fingering, the note fingering was really, really important to a lot of the people who play guitar and the music team because it's something that's immediately obviously wrong when you know those things. For most players, they probably won't notice, but it was to the point where we actually took video capture of of the different chord shapes that we needed and we sent it to the animation team and we sent it to the designers to make sure that each one of these chord shapes were correct. Uh, in addition to that, we had to make some compromises on the notes. So one thing you'll notice is whenever you change which uh, chord you're trying to fret, she'll just instantly fret whatever it is. We let the notes ring out in spite of that. And even though that's technically wrong, where as soon as you would fret a new note, if you hit something that was ringing, it would stop it. We found that based on most players that don't necessarily understand that, it sounded more stilted, it didn't sound natural, and it didn't sound as fun when people were just noodling on guitars. And while we were doing our playtesting, we really found that even bringing people in to playtest, they would spend, some of them would spend like an hour or more just sitting there noodling around, seeing if they could come up with songs. 
oh man, I can really play Nirvana or I can play, uh, you know, any number of, of different songs that people were thinking of. And it was really cool. And since the game's come out, I mean, that's one of my favorite video types to go searching on YouTube for. It's just like the plethora of covers that have come out of uh, of that work is just awesome. And it, it and the, the level of detail that we were able to put into it, I think is part of why it's so fun to play. Uh, it's because it sounds realistic and in some ways it can teach you a couple chord shapes that you can try on your own guitar if you want. I love watching uh, Ellie play Metallica covers. That's been my favorite uh, go-to. <laughs> and some Nine Inch Nails covers and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, Nothing Else Matters. Or or uh, I love the Johnny Cash Hurt. I don't know if you've seen that one. That one's great as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the community obviously is very passionate. I, I too probably spent, I don't, not, not an hour, but I spent a good 10 minutes like, oh, what songs do I know? Let me uh, let Ellie play for me and play it out. So Jonathan, uh, what's the tech behind building a mini game inside of a big game? something like this, which was so effectively done. Actually, I'm not the right person to ask about that because I didn't actually have to do anything. Our engine was versatile enough that uh, they were able to script it using our regular engine tech. So there wasn't anything special we had to do for that. Yeah, it's one of the one of the beautiful things about how flexible our audio system is and, and what Jonathan has given us um, is that a lot of it can be done. If, it's like if you can think it, it can be done. Um, and if there's any support that needs to be added, Jonathan's always there for us. But this was one of those instances, those beautiful times where we had everything we needed and it was really just on the design team to to come up with the the mechanics to, to play back the sounds. And then, like I said, we influenced a bit on our end on how uh, how it all ended up sounding. Yeah, just to expand on that a little bit, since, since I obviously can't answer the question directly since I didn't work on it, um, I still think it's an interesting uh, point to note. Like we have a really strong philosophy at in Naughty Dog's audio department about being uh, sound designer centric. Like my goal as an audio programmer is not to uh, try and implement all the tech myself. Uh, there are times when I have to do that, and when I do, I do. But my main goal is to empower the sound designers so that when I can give them the, uh, a piece of tech, if I can give it to them in a way that empowers them to run with it and make it more data-driven so that they don't have to come back to me and ask for more programming support, then I would favor doing the data-driven approach. So over the years, we've basically evolved a lot of the things. Like when I started in Audio Dog back in 2003, everything in audio was hard-coded. And if you wanted to change even the volume of the sound, you had to go talk to the programmer responsible for that level. I immediately changed all that. I'm like, no, 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 this is wrong, 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 backwards. No, 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 sound designers need able to... Like we ended up breaking all the... The first thing I did was change our audio tech back in the early 2000s so that we were data-driven, so that all the audio was controlled by metadata. And over the years, we've expanded those metadata sets. So today, between the combination of the scripting engine and Scream and the metadata-driven uh, systems that I've given them, uh, the sound designers can do a lot. They have, they have what we call CC sounds for doing variable-controlled dynamic sounds. They have dynamic mixing. They have dynamic metadata. They have game scripting, which can also drive sounds, and they also have full control over the game's level editor, Charter, which allows them to script up things in that. So uh, at this point, when Rob comes to me with a technical challenge, it's usually a big one because it's like a new building block or a fundamental thing that we have that we don't have, that we, that we don't have that we need. Like 
our current sound designers, when we hire a new sound designer, we actually have to go through a lot of training because we have to teach them how to use, because we actually have a lot of ways to play sounds in our engine. And so we end up having to train them and teach them all the different ways to use the systems we have because we've empowered the sound designers to the point where they can do most things on their own, which is how I think it should be. Um, I, I was just going to add, while for a long time we um, uh, scream, scream our middleware tool was the is is a tool that that we use exclusively. Um, uh, there was a period where other Sony studios used it, and then we kind of ended up being the only people that were using it for a while. And now some other studios are starting to use it again. Uh, even other people who've used Scream, so one of our sound designers, Michael uh, Marchesoto, who designed all the Melee systems, had used Scream, um, and uh, we use it differently. So we even have to train people who already know some of the tools because we do things so differently, and uh, we break out a lot of stuff uh, uh, in a way that that other that other uh, middleware tools don't. And we have. Uh, I think I said this somewhere else that that um, w- Scream allows us an, an unprecedented level of engagement with the entire engine that is so powerful. Like to compare, in The Last of Us, the, the, the CC sounds that Jonathan was talking about, the continuous controller sounds, variable inputs, um, we had very few of those uh, in The Last of Us. Mostly it was just hard-bucketed you know, uh, uh, sounds per event, right? Almost every sound in the game now is uses CC sounds and some extremely complexly. Uh, that's not a word, but you know, some there, there's a there uh, like uh, some of the systems I worked on, some of the systems that uh, other sound designers worked on. The the amount of variable input that we get, uh, and it really just takes a programmer. Hey, can you give me a CC? Can you give me a CC var for that? And they go, Oh yeah, okay. And if it's something they're already measuring, then it's actually no cost to the engine at all, and uh, it Scream just processes it, and so we can. We can take any gameplay, any gameplay variable that exists or ones that don't exist, and uh, and get it into the game immediately. And that's how the, you know, whether whether that's through scripting or whether that's hard coded in C you know, however that works. Uh, and so the fact that that we've gone from you know in a matter of three games from very few variable generated, you know, variable uh, variable mediated sounds to almost every sound in the game being a variable mediated sound is really a technological uh, achievement and leap that is, uh, it's the one thing that makes me, uh, it's one thing that makes me kind of glad I, I, I missed out on film and went into games um, because the, the level of, the level of, uh, 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 the, the, the challenges are not just creative in terms of sound design. They're technical. They're, I, I, and I never, the, the, I walk away feeling like I am never going to know enough. I'm never, there's never going to be a point, you know, in game development where I'm going to know everything. There's always something to new because the technology is always changing. And um, that's the most exciting thing about games uh, to me, you know, is, is to see that development and be a part of that development. And, uh, and get to experience it and bang my head against the wall. Like when things don't work right, you know, and, uh, and then have to come call Jonathan or, you know, one of the other programs. Why <laughs> isn't this working? Uh, one thing I want to add though, I think one word that best describes it. And I, and I, I, we overuse this word a lot at Naughty Dog, but that word would be dynamic. Um, what Neil is describing is basically the concept of dynamic sound design. And we've gotten to a point in game design 
like 10, 15 years ago, sound design in games is like you make a bucket of sounds, the game triggers the sound, plays the sound, the sound is done. Maybe if you've got a sophisticated sound, you play a loop and then you start the loop and stop the loop. And maybe the loop has an intro and an outro and that's pretty much it. We've evolved so far beyond that because when you have a game that is as nuanced as the kind of games that we're making, like if something is, I think the, the, the phrase that we use a lot is like, if it, if it animates at all in the world, it has to have sound on it because anything that moves makes sound. So that means everything has to make sounds. And the more uh, organic in which a thing moves, the more organic the sound design has to be. So we, we have gotten well down the rabbit hole of not being able to just wire one-shot sounds to events. Like, like, like Neil said, like almost like the large majority of our sounds are now variable-driven sounds because they have to be. Because if they don't, they don't match the visuals. And the more organic the visuals get, the more organic the sound design has to get. And so we're at a point where like organic sound design is pretty much the norm rather than the, than the, the special case. So uh, that's another thing that people have to learn when we bring them in here, because if they're used to working in a company where sound design is just dropping sounds into buckets, that doesn't really work very well here. And that's another reason why we like to have a core team of sound designers on site, because throwing sounds over a wall does not work. I mean, that might work if you're doing a cutscene and you're doing linear medium, but when you're doing a, a game where everything is, is dynamic and variable, you, you can't throw sounds over a wall. You have to be on site. You have to play the game. You have to experience it. You have to communicate and collaborate with the other departments to figure out how to make this stuff work, because the days of just wiring up sounds to events is over. It's gone. Actually, it's one of the things that we do is that when we bring a new sound designer on board, um, we let them do what we consider to be the easy things, which is in-game cinematics, IGCs, you know, small things like that, or big set pieces or something, you know, if, if they're ready for that, because they're simple, they're, they're linear. The, once you start getting into systems, once you start getting into complicated uh, variable-driven sounds, that, that takes a lot of experience just working at the studio with the engine to understand what is possible and what needs to be newly created. So as you get further along as uh, an employee, you know, at a uh, sound designer at Naughty Dog, you start working more on systems. Uh, that's how I started on, on a chart of three. I was working on IGCs doing doors and, you know, this thing and, uh, you know, whatever little IGC moments there were on the last of us, I did a lot of IGCs and on, and some systems. And then on a chart of four and sense, all I've worked on is systems. Um, because it just takes, it takes a while to, uh, uh, to, to teach people how, how to think about how we do sound. I mean, you know, a lot of other middleware tools and stuff, they do all of these things that, you know, the, the variable driven, you know, it's not, that's not in and of itself unique. Um, I think at least for us, what's unique is how, uh, it's almost everything and it's, um, and there's no limits to it. We're not, we're not limited because we're both the creator of the tool and the creator of the engine. Uh, uh, we have, we, you know, we can manipulate anything we want. And so Jonathan, you know, and the tools and tech guys at Sony, uh, who, who maintain the tool, um, work, we work together very, very closely. And we did on this project uh, pretty much very, very close to the end, you know, on tools improvements and, uh, uh, and tech improvements, you know, to, to get, you know, every last little bit of mileage that we could out of the, you know, out of the tool and out of the engine and, uh, it's just, uh, I'm just blown away by it. I'm, you know, to me, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> I'm excited to see this is all pl under PlayStation four, a very, 
very robust system. Now we're entering the future of PlayStation 5, and, and I feel like the world is <laughs> your oyster. Um, two small things I want to point out, which I really enjoyed, which is the classic Naughty Dog set pieces of just running away from being forced to run down corridors and like having to like survive to me. You guys, hands down, continue to terrify the player. Uh, the first one with Abby in the snow, I was just like, oh, I forgot. I'm playing a Naughty Dog game, and sound is just right there behind you. Oh. 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 And also the other one was every time our character dies or gets killed. I don't care how many times I hear that sound or that experience, it's ter it, it, it's so effective and how you guys crafted that. So kudos in that regard. The Foley, once again, I never thought that I could like knock over small things and hear them crash. Not only all the glass elements, but all the other small nuances. I, I love the drum kit. The drum kit was a, a, a fun little nuance thing and Gustavo playing uh, banjo in Jackson was a fun moment. Um, and then also stuff we didn't even talk about, which was like the aquarium and the theater, um, the PTSD at the farm with Ellie. There's a lot of um, very incredible moments that I just can really pull in the listener. Um, and not only that, you guys finished up a game just as COVID was landing and you had to go go to <laughs> you had to go home and, and, and get this game shipped off so I feel like as a player you take everything for granted because it's it's this masterpiece that you guys have been working on for so long um, I love the opportunity lastly now just for you guys to open it up you mentioned Bo uh, Justin and Jesse and Mike who are some of the other guys on on your team that you want to acknowledge and, and give a shout out to uh, so we we had two um, more junior level sound designers join us very late in the production uh, who were extremely helpful in in tying off all the loose ends you mentioned the physics objects Derek Brown um, there were over 2,000 physics objects with the little objects you can knock around and he it was his mission to get every single one of those covered with sound and he was able to accomplish it by the end of the game and then Jordan Denton uh, she was critical in helping Justin populate lots of our fine emitters all throughout the game if you're in any of the rainy areas throughout the game she really contributed an amazing layer of detail um, adding that stuff in um, we also need to mention sam st Clair, who is our implementer um, he is responsible for keeping all those tags we talked about all those complicated tags up to date for these motion matching sets and all the foley he worked super close with uh with neil um, he also worked with Chris Wallacect, who was uh, also doing similar work underneath him, as well as supporting Justin doing environmental audio regions. Um, and that's, uh, I, I also need to shout out our friends at Formosa, uh, Shannon Potter and Chad Bedell in particular. They did unbelievable work on the cinematics. Shannon is the supervisor over there. She helped supervise the Foley recording, as well as all the cinematic work. Um, and she did a phenomenal job. I'll let Maggot call out some more of our dialogue folks as well. Uh, yeah, the um, uh, dialogue team, uh, we it is, I mean, the entire audio team, we're pretty much a big family, but uh, I'm really proud of all the work that the dialogue team has uh, done together. And um, uh, Mike Herhan, who is our, uh, who was credited as our supervising dialogue designer, who is now our principal dialogue designer, uh, who comes up with all of our systemic uh, dialogue systems. Uh, the whistle system would be nothing if it wasn't for the groundwork that was done for all of the systems that he had set in place over, over, over a decade of 
of time uh, at Naughty Dog, uh, our names wouldn't be possible. Uh, our our new dialogue gore system for when people are getting murdered wouldn't be possible. Um, uh, if it wasn't for all of the interconnective tissue that Mike has set the ground on and working with Sam to tag that as well uh, has helped uh, immensely to kind of bring life and horror and consequence to dialogue. Um, uh, uh, Emily uh, Scrivener, who is also our dialogue designer for for narrative, and same for Sean Lavalle, their their natural sense of pacing and timing really kind of sets us apart. It's something that's an uh, a, a unsung hero when it comes to when it comes to narrative dialogue. Is timing is is critical. Uh, and uh, these guys just have a really good sense of the world, really good sense of the writing and what the characters would and would not do. Um, and then our, our dialogue coordinator is uh, Grayson, Grayson Stone, who uh, came up with our whistles uh, and helped uh, help manage the team when I was off-site. Uh, Julius Kukla, who is uh, one of our tools geniuses, but also a dialogue coordinator. Very, ex extremely talented. Those two guys actually uh, uh, managed a lot of the uh, of the story. Actually, most of, all, if not all, of the story material. Um, uh, and then Thomas Barrett, who is our systems uh, dialogue coordinator, who edited all of the system content. Uh, God bless him. He he cut most of the dialogue in the entire game, um, and also worked on uh, the, his one story piece was the Santa Barbara Beach fight uh, at the end, which was a, a, a really really big moment for him. And he absolutely hit home runs on that across the board. Jaime Marcelo, who, uh, uh, along with the assistance of Sam Prince, who is one of our video editors, uh, Jaime Marcelo is our dialogue coordinator for IGCs. So all of the little in-game cinematics when you're going through a valve and all that stuff, Jaime really, really uh, took charge of that. And we wouldn't have got through the game without it. And then lastly, uh, Eric Schmall, who came on super, super late. Um, and he helped with the uh, a lot of the systemic stuff with Thomas, and he took on the Gore system, uh, which came on very very late, and it it was very specialized. And without him there, we wouldn't have actually been able to give systemic dialogue the polish that it actually deserved from the AFM brute fight to where after he gets that injury in the sickle, um, all of the all of the really bloody wet performances from our wonderful actors was all uh, basically handcrafted by him uh, uh, and in collaboration with Mike and myself. So yeah, that our, our team, we have, we, we were lucky on this game. Uh, the people make this game and, and uh, uh, we were very, very lucky to have every single one of them, uh, both dialogue and sound. Couple more folks I want to shout out is our our localization team um, because we are a global product. We are not just a, an English game. And uh, Kurt Mendoza, who came in to the project as our dialogue uh, coordinator, and Carolyn um, Lavaroni, they managed an insane amount of languages and managed to keep it all on time. And they. They barely worked any overtime, which is an amazing feat that must be highlighted because it's hard to not work overtime working on these crazy games. And they did such a fantastic job managing this stuff. And it's probably the best sounding localization we've had across the board on any of our games. And it and they really, really, really did a fantastic job. And then I also just want to shout out to our, our music friends over at, at PD Music. Um, Scott Hanau is the music manager over there. And Rob Goodson and Scott Shoemaker were our partners and they 
worked with Matt Quayle and Gustavo, as well as their own in-house folks to, to craft all the music in the game. And uh, th that is no small feat in and of itself. They were um, amazing collaborators that I, that I have to give props to. I, I also want to give a shout out to the PD Music team. Scott Hanau and his, his guys are incredible. And uh, I also want to point out that they have evolved this system over the years, the interactive music system. It's their design. Uh, they spec it out and I implement it. And uh, the Naughty Dog interactive music system that, that they have designed is, is absolutely incredible. And I think they did an amazing job with this game, with the music. I mean, it's, it's truly incredible. Uh, and I think, again, it's another one of those things where because the music is, is played low in a lot of parts of the game, it's not obvious how complicated that system is, but it's, it's also driven by game state and, com and, uh, and uh, context tension. Uh, all the variables that would feed into all the other systems also feed into the music system. I could I could probably talk for an hour just about the interactive music system, uh, but I won't. But I just want to shout out to them because they did more than just record the music. They actually collaborated with me on site. They would come down regularly to collaborate to design the actual tech for the interactive music system, and it and it truly is an amazing system. It's an exciting time to be in video games. You guys have obviously had a, a, a really fun, challenging experience putting the sound uh, and the engine and just continuing to push the creative envelope when it comes to video game sound design. I'm excited because there might be a HBO series of The Last of Us, which who knows what the future holds, but um, just knowing that the story and the work that you guys do will continue into the future is really exciting because it's, um, I was so excited to play this game. I said, when they said, oh, it's 25 to 30 hours of gameplay, I, I milked it for as long as I could to get through the game because I just knew that I, I don't want to rush the experience. And I feel like the community and worldwide community of gamers really took, um, took this game on and I think it shows that you know everyone was incredibly blown away and satisfied with what you guys did. So congratulations on this fantastic title. I'm excited to see what the future holds. Fortunately, you guys can hopefully take a little bit of a breath because there's no, <laughs> there's nothing easy about doing what you do and you guys so eloquently shared all your stories. So thank you guys so much. Dude, Michael, thank you so much for having us, man. We're huge fans of Soundworks and we really appreciate you having the team on, man. Mm -hmm.